chapter 12, verses 13 through 25. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself more harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then a servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning once again. It's good to be with you. I'm thankful to study the scriptures uh, once again. And if you're new to North Cross, uh, we're glad to have you, welcome. And uh, I'd encourage you all, whether you're new or here again, uh, as part of our family, that we could just hang out afterwards and we'd love to get to know you better. Um, so we can hang out outside, inside, it's a new era. So feel free to, to do either one. Uh, this morning, we're actually gonna resume our study, uh, our spring and sermon series on the life of David. And as told now in the second half of the book of 2 Samuel, I'm just going to give a brief content warning. Now, maybe it's too late for this week, uh, but for the future, especially for next week, but future weeks as well, uh, the Bible's at pains to speak about real life. Okay? And so sometimes, like real life, the last chapters of 2 Samuel depict some gritty, tough scenes. Like today's episode we just read, but especially like next Sunday's 2 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, it's important to read and preach the whole Bible. And it's important for us to talk about sometimes mature themes in church. And we need to do that carefully uh, from the pulpit, but we need to talk about it. And next week we're gonna talk about sexual violence. And so I want to understand that we all have different personal histories and that may or may not be appropriate depending on your parenting. We have different styles and preferences for parenting. Um, and so if you have children um, or if you feel that way, there'll be options for you next Sunday to please come and worship with us. And if you need to step out during the service or have your children step out during the service, uh, we'll accommodate that. Anyway, um, so maybe you're asking, why are we looking at 2 Samuel then again? Uh, well, I actually think that King David is a most important historical figure, and I don't just think that. One scholar compares the Bible's 
depiction of the life of David to other famous historical sources, oftentimes later even. And the same scholar, Robert Pfeiffer, calls First and Second Samuel a masterpiece unsurpassed in historicity, psychological insight, and dramatic power. And the Bible itself makes it clear that David is not just a most historical, important historical figure, he's the most important spiritual figure. David's name is mentioned almost 1,000 times in the Bible. And aside from the title Lord, the son of David is the most popular way that people address Jesus in the New Testament. But as we'll see in our passage this morning, David's life has things worth imitating, yet at the very same time, he does and he says things worth avoiding at all costs. So the true hero of David's story just like our story, is the God who became like us so that we can become like him. And this is why our title for our sermon series was and continues to be the God after our own hearts. The God after our own hearts. But before we step back into David's story and look more closely at how God meets us in these moments of sin's heartache, would you pray with me and for our time together and God's words to us this morning? Father, um, this is a passage that brings up a lot for a lot of people, um, and I pray that you be with that by your spirit. Um, Would you use your words once again to encourage, to challenge, to comfort, to grow and mature us in the faith? Lord, um, there are some here who've never heard of you, Jesus, really, um, who don't know the gospel message of your salvation, and I pray that this would be a time where they come acquainted with it and perhaps even believe. And there is those who've heard here every week and Lord and, and, and struggle to apply it to their lives. And I pray this would be a week where you uh, meet uh, our lives with your words. And then there are those here who are eagerly expecting a good word. Would you not disappoint our expectations? Would you fill us with the goodness of your word? We ask, Jesus, these things in your name and for your sake that you'd become more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. Amen. Kobayashi Isa was a poet uh, in Japan and a Buddhist priest, and he lived at the turn of the 19th century, which means he was born in the late 1700s and he died in the early 1800s. And he's known as one of the four great masters of an art form that you may or may have not done in elementary school called haiku, <laughs> okay? Haiku is this, uh, this poetry form that has short three-line, it's a three-line poem, and it begins, the first line's five syllables, the second line is seven syllables, and the third line is the same as the first line, five syllables. And like many poets, Kobayashi Isa wrote directly out of his personal life and his sufferings. For instance, after a long legal dispute in which he had to fight for his inheritance that had been promised to him, uh, Kobayashi Isa finally moves back to his hometown and he settles down, he, he finds a wife and marries a woman named Kiku and they begin to have children, but their very first child together, a boy, dies shortly after birth. And their next child, a girl, dies two and a half years later. In his heartache, Isa tries to make sense of his own sufferings and the sufferings all around him in this world. 
and he writes a poem, a haiku. And it goes like this. This world of dew is a world of dew. And yet, and yet, this world of dew is a world of dew. And yet, and yet. Here Issa is acknowledging a universal human reality. Death makes life on earth impermanent. Like the sun makes dew impermanent. Death dries up life like the sun dries up dew. But Issa can't stop there. His poem refuses to only acknowledge the truth that all is suffering. That last line is like a gasp. Or maybe it's just a mutter under the breath. And yet, and yet. That is, Issa's hinting at or even asking out loud, is there something more? Something more than just suffering. Something more like a meaning in the pain. Perhaps even there's someone more than a mere human help to explain and to heal up the hurt and to make the sadness come untrue. Viktor Frankl lived more than 200 years after Issa and halfway across the world in Vienna, Austria. But out of his own enormous pain, the horrors of Auschwitz, the Nazi concentration camp, Viktor Frankl tries to answer Issa's half-hinted question, that and yet. In his book, The Man's Search for Meaning, Frankl repeatedly writes about finding a meaning that's able to withstand the pain of these sort of all too real nightmarish situations, like a concentration camp or the death of a child. And further, Viktor Frankl, like Kobayashi Issa before him, would tell us that the pain, the heartache of failed relationships, of failed careers, of serious illness and death, or even just the heartache of life not working the way you think it should. These rightly make us ask the question, why? Why? Why is this happening? Or if we're honest, why is this happening to me? Suffering makes us ask these hard questions. They're so important, they're always there, but we're often afraid to ask them. Why does life, my life, work the way it does? How do I live this life? And I'm not talking about on a suburban survival skills level, right? You know, this isn't about just Burkdale and Harris Teeter runs, bill auto pay, or calculating square footage. This is about the bigger picture. How do I face and process the way my life has been? Where is it headed? Do I want to go there? And a final difficult question, what actually gives life my life meaning? In the Christian world, and even in the church, I think we're afraid to go there sometimes. We don't wanna talk about suffering because we're afraid mentioning it will make it happen. You know, sort of like saying the name Voldemort in the Harry Potter series. <laughs> or we don't somehow want to invite verbally suffering into our best life now plans. Thank you very much. Or perhaps we're scared that easy spiritual answers we've learned can't stand up, that can't withstand suffering's difficult questions. Like quoting life's impermanence at the death of two children. 
I confess for those reasons and more, I did not really want to preach on this passage this morning and very nearly skipped it out of fear. But it's a really important passage to 2 Samuel's narrative. And as I think about the life of our church, it's an important passage to tell us what we need to hear. Because all of us are just one relationship away from heavy-duty heartache. This isn't because North Cross is somehow cursed with affliction. It's because we are in each other's very real lives, and real life has suffering. And so our passage this morning pushes into the suffering's difficult questions and begins to answer them with the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah and an unnamed child and Solomon. Our outline will walk through, suffering, through this narrative, letting the story of God work through David. What does this work through David? How does it answer these questions, these heavy questions that personal suffering unearths? So first, verses 13 through 15, we're going to ask, why does life work the way it does? Second, verses 16 through 24, we're going to ask, how do we live with meaning, with purpose? And then third, and finally, we're going to ask in verses 24 and 25, what gives life meaning? You can find these questions and verses in your sermon outline, and it's in the e-bulletin or the slide behind me, perhaps. Let's begin with the first question in verses 13 through 15, the why question. Why is this or that hardship happening? Our passage's first few verses come at the end of a scene where Nathan, the prophet, confronts David about his sin. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. David has tried to cover it up by lying, manipulating, and ultimately murdering Uriah his good friend and Bathsheba's husband, along with many other soldiers under the command of Joab. In verse 13, David confesses and repents of his sin. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And therefore, God through Nathan tells David, the Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because you, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Verses 13 through 14. So in two short sentences, God tells David how his life is going to work from now on and why. And I would add these two sentences with care can apply to our lives as well. So let's begin with the first sentence. God assures David that he has put away your sin. That is God has taken care of David's sin so he will not treat David as his sin deserves, right? David deserves to die for intentionally murdering Uriah and a host of other soldiers. David said so himself in his response to Nathan's parable in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5. You remember that Nathan sort of compared a king, King David, to a shepherd who has lots of sheep and takes and kills a sheep from a person that only has one, Uriah. And, this is, and so David says, this is what the law calls for, death. But instead, in this passage, in this verse, David gets mercy. God gives mercy. David does not get what he deserves, namely death. But how can God so show such mercy and still be just? The answer is spelled out much more fully in the New Testament and is at the heart of the gospel and applies equally to us if and as we believe in Jesus. Romans 5 
chapters eight and uh, chapter five, verses eight through nine. But God shows His love for us that while we are we're, st- we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. It's the heart of the gospel. On our own, our own deeds, thoughts, feelings deserve wrath and punishment unto death. But Jesus died as a substitute for us. And by Jesus' death, God paid what we owe morally and legally, legally once and forevermore. Amen. This means that God's second sentence to David in verse 14 cannot, it cannot be because God is angry at David. He spent his wrath on David. He spent his wrath on Jesus on the cross on David's behalf, as hinted at in Hebrews chapter 11, right? Not, it's not because this passage, verse 14, cannot be because God needs to punish David. Jesus was punished in David's place. David's sins and our sins are cosmically and legally put away. So this is why Nathan is careful to specify the reason David's particular suffering will happen. He says it this way, because by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. What does that mean? (laughs) It means at least two things. First, there's a sense in which the consequences for David's sins are different than the consequences for our sins. Because there's a sense in which we are different than David. The original Hebrew of verse 14 gets at this difference and a more literal translation will show you this. A more literal translation actually reads, because by this deed, you have utterly spurned the enemies of the Lord. You see, David was the divinely elected king of God's kingdom on earth, ancient Israel. And this means that David was supposed to embody the rule of God's law and his own person was supposed to embody God's holiness, right? To his fellow Israelites, but also to the international community and particularly including the enemies of the Lord. And Jesus in the gospels tells us to whom much is given, much is expected, okay? So David's sin has a bigger scope It affects a nation and it affects international politics. And ultimately it affects God's kingdom and the reputation of God's kingdom. And so the consequences for these sins must be equally large and equally public. And this is why as David himself again predicted in its response to Nathan's parable, this time verse six of 2 Samuel chapter 12, David will have to restore Uriah's death fourfold. He will lose, that is, he will hand over to death four sons, this unnamed infant, and then also Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. Each son, each son's death is going to have a national and international effect on purpose. But there's also a sense in which the consequences for David's sins are similar to the consequences for our sins because there is a sense in which we are similar to David, not just different, right? 
You see, David as a person did utterly spurn God and he did utterly spurn what God had given him. David cynically and rather desperately used the people around him for his own power and for his own pleasure. Bathsheba was an object. Uriah was an obstacle. Nathan was an inconvenience and Joab, his commander, was a convenience. People's lives were unimportant to David. But God cared too much for David to let him treat God and other people this way. And so God allows suffering to enter into David's life and he uses it to teach David's heart to treasure God and to treasure other people more than himself and more than his power and pleasure. And we could see this we could see this at work in the David's reaction, his on the floor all night long lament for another's life. In verse 16, where was that after the death of Uriah? And his concern for Bathsheba in verse 24. Again, where was that after the death of Uriah? And David's heart has been softened by, by what the suffering has brought. God and other people's lives are now much more important to David and sadly, sometimes the only way that our hearts can learn these kind of deep lessons is through God's use of the scalpel of suffering. He's got to do this kind of moral life and death heart surgery. But I am afraid of getting too far ahead of myself. And I, want to, I think it's important to say a few caveats here, okay? It's important for us, first of all, to think that we're not God. You and I are not God. We do not know like God knows, <laughs> okay? What that means is don't assume you know exactly how life always works. You just don't, and I don't. We kind of sometimes assume that there's this one-to-one -one correspondence, this sort of simple cause and effect that goes on with life, that a particular suffering is because of a particular sin. But remember, in Jesus, God does not punish his children. Remember that. So let me be really clear. If you've suffered a difficult loss, like a miscarriage, for instance, it's not helpful and it's downright harmful to assume that God was punishing you for some specific sin. Suffering is not random. God does use suffering, but let's not forget that there is a mystery to the way that God works. Don't make the mistake of Job's friends in the Bible. Yes, sins can and do have consequences. Parking, parking illegally in a loading zone for your own personal convenience can, maybe often does, result in a ticket or a tow. But big, bad, complicated suffering and horrors do not usually happen because of an individual sin or two. Okay? Okay. That required a lot of explanation. We went into the weeds there, but let's continue to try to wisely apply how life works with our second big question. If life's suffering is not punishment for a Christian and the sins, but an evil that God uses for our good, how then do we live with meaning? And what's beautiful is we get to answer that question in verses 16 through 24 of our passage. In verses 16 through 17, we read that after David's child becomes sick, David hits the floor and he does not get up from the floorboards all night, 
even for food or for water or for company. In the first season of the podcast Serial, there's a grieving mother that tries to explain what it feels like to lose a child to a courtroom. It's the kind of suffering that David and Bathsheba endure in this passage. And so she kind of explains it in a really beautiful way, and it's a heartbreaking way. She begins by quoting a Korean proverb that, re- that says, when parents die, they are buried in the ground. When a child dies, you bury the child in your heart. And then she adds with tears in her eyes, when I die, when I die, my daughter will die with me. And as long as I live, my daughter is buried in my heart. I don't know where to hear her voice. I don't know where to touch her hand. Look, every one of us in this room has or will encounter major suffering. Like David, many of us are even dealing with this kind of suffering right now. And I know this is so very difficult to talk about, but again, this is why it's so important not to skip over passages like this in the scriptures, but instead to learn from them. And verses 16 and 17 teach us what intense suffering does to all of us. Eventually, it puts us face down on the floor all night. That is a very natural reaction to suffering. But verses 16 and 17 also teach us a supernatural Holy Spirit reaction to suffering. This is what David does on the floor. Supernaturally, he prays. Verse 16, David sought God on behalf of the child. David speaks to God. He fasts from food in isolation for seven days and nights in order to petition God, hoping against hope to save the life of his infant son. And perhaps this seems, more, this seems very understandable, but if we take a step back, maybe it also seems a bit unrealistic. After all, didn't God promise in verse 14, the child born to you shall die? And this is part of what confuses David's servants by David's reaction to the suffering. And so David explains himself, and in so doing, he gives us a way to live with meaning. What drives us to hit the floorboards in prayer in the midst of suffering? What gives us the resolve to get up again, to resume living life, showering and changing clothes, back at church, eating, re-entering family and re-entering work? How do we keep praying? How do we keep living everyday life with our unanswered prayers? This, verses 22 through 23. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David is here giving us the why behind the how. The meaning we need to be able to pray and to endure in the midst of terrible suffering. First, David is encouraging us to confess that God is much, much bigger than us. Confess that God is much, much bigger than us. 
David can reenter everyday life. He can stop fasting. He can stop praying for his child because he is willing to confess that just because I, in my own humanity, cannot see a reason for the suffering does not mean that God does not have a bigger God-sized reason for the suffering. Do you hear that humility? Just because I, in my humanity, cannot explain the suffering does not mean that there is not a reason for the suffering. The pastor and author Tim Keller is so helpful on this. A God infinite and great enough to blame or to be angry at is also at the same time a God great and infinite enough to have reasons that our reason does not know. In David's story, we can be sure, we can't be sure exactly, but it's likely that God is using the pain and the heartache of losing this unnamed infant son to do some kind of heart surgery on David. And we can almost imagine God responding to David's prayers with tears in his eyes, saying, I hate to do this, David, but this is the kind of surgery is the only way I know to keep you spiritually alive. Otherwise, your will to pleasure and your will to power is going to consume you and to consume those around you. There's no other way. Interestingly, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, that, he's, a Vietnam, he's a Viennese uh, psychoanalyst, dismisses Sigmund Freud's pl- uh, pursuit of pleasure, the pleasure principle, and Alfred Adler's striving for superiority. Frankl writes, in the concentration camp, in the midst of intense suffering, sex and power don't matter. That is to say, there is a need for a will to meaning, an and yet, a something more, really a someone more, someone who is big enough that pain and death cannot overcome him, the Lord our God. And trusting in who God is, even when we don't know what he is doing, faith in God's character leads us to our second way to live with meaning. David is encouraging us to trust in God. To trust God is much, much more gracious than us. (laughs) Trust God is much, much more gracious than us. Gracious than us. In verse 22, David tells us the other reason he wept and he fasted and he prayed to God. I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. That is, David heard God's intention to let his son die, but he took God's grace, he took his undeserved favor so seriously that he thought God might once again surprise David. After all, sometimes God threatens exile and death in the Old Testament only to encourage his people to repent and pray. And it's just like God, it's in his very character to give David and to give us exactly what we do not deserve, that is grace. And so God is honored by David's audaciously faithful prayers. It's like that story that maybe you've heard before about a poor philosopher who goes to the richest man he knows in the time, the ancient conqueror, Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great tells the philosopher, um, excuse me, the philosopher goes to Alexander the Great and asks him for money. And Alexander the Great tells the philosopher to go to his royal treasurer and to ask for whatever he wants. And so the philosopher promptly goes to the treasurer and demands in Alexander's name 
10,000 pounds of gold. And the treasurer is shocked, right? Then he's offended. And then he refuses to give the philosopher money and drags him back in front of Alexander the Great and says, this was absurd. Let me tell you what this guy did. And then Alexander the Great said this in response to his treasurer. Let the money be instantly paid. I am delighted with the philosopher's way of thinking. He has done me singular honor. By the largeness of his request, he shows the high idea he has conceived, both of my wealth and my royal generosity. (laughs) The point is, how much you ask of God is a sign of your honor for him. And therefore, you can never ask for too much of God's grace. And verses 24 through 25 show us why. In light of these verses, David's request for his infant son is not too big, it's somehow even too small. It's amazing, you see, we can only live with meaning like David because we know what gives life meaning. The Lord, our God, who is bigger and more gracious than we can imagine. And this God proves his size and he proves his grace by what he does in verses 24 and 25. And this is our third and final and mercifully brief point. In verse 24, David and Bathsheba have a second son and Bathsheba names him Solomon. And Solomon, we think, maybe means something like replacement or even perhaps something like peace, like I'm at peace. But then we're told the Lord isn't satisfied. And the Lord loved him, that's Solomon, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. And so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. God especially named Solomon. He marks Solomon out as David's next in royal line. He gives him a highly personal throne name, Jedidiah, meaning beloved of the Lord, or the Lord loves and delights in him. The one, by the way, the child of an unlawful union that was sealed by adultery and murder, that is outrageous and surprising grace. And, and what's more, and I just can't get over this. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Ch- Matthew chapter one tells us that Solomon, along with David and Bathsheba, are not just in Israel's royal line. Solomon is the, in the line of the world's salvation. He's Jesus's ancestor. So God, in his infinite size, outmatches us at our worst. Our sin cannot stop his plan. No matter who we are or what we've done, God will use our greatest failures to accomplish his plan and its work. By faith in Jesus, no matter who you are or what you've done, you are God's Jedediah, his beloved. The Lord of the universe delights in you, and this is so important to remember in the midst of suffering. But how, why is this true? Because no one lost a child like God. Jesus, utterly forsaken, and hell. And we can almost imagine God the Father responding to the prayers of his own son, Jesus, with tears in his fatherly eyes, saying, if I could have done it any other way, I would have. My son. But God, in his great size, God in his surprising grace, 
God let his own son Jesus die so that his later born other sons and daughters, even we could be called beloved of God. And this highly documented historically fa historical fact means God is not just in our sufferings, holding our sufferings with us. God's still with us in the sense that Jesus' still nail-wounded hands don't just hold sufferings with us. They hold our sufferings for us. By Jesus' wounds, we are healed. And this is the last and yet, and yet, that Kobayashi Isa is moaning for. And it's that something more that you and I are looking for in life's heartache too. And really that 20th century American poet who is Christian, Frederick Binger puts it best. Christianity merely points to the cross and says that practically speaking, there is no evil so dark and so obscene, not even this, but that God cannot turn it to good. Jesus' death takes what we, what others, what this fallen world intends for evil, and the cross refashions it into good. His resurrection promises that there will be a day, someday, when all the sad things will come untrue. Would you pray with me once again? Father, thank you for this message, and thank you for being able to address some things that are very hard. Um, Lord, I pray that you would go before and around and after me and uh, separate the wheat from the chaff. Would you plant good seeds in our hearts? Would you bring this passage and your truths to mind as we bear things that feel unbearable? And Father, would you be with our little church would you be with the things that weigh us? Would you be with the people that are suffering? Um, Lord, and would you give them comfort and sweet relief that can only come from you? Help us to trace your heart when we can't trace your hand, God. In your name we pray. Amen.